I'm Angel, passionate birth worker and podcast host of the Birth Rebel Podcast. I'm bringing you a blend of heart, soul, and a bit of controversy. Join me on my podcast where I dive fearlessly into thought-provoking discussions about the most controversial topics in pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, and postpartum. I'm unmasking the truths. I'm challenging norms and sparking conversations that matter. Let's celebrate the beauty of the perinatal space while fearlessly confronting the tough questions together. Tune in for guest interviews from health professionals leading the charge into changing the perinatal space and my own expertise in diverse topics. All right, Birth Rebel, let's jump into it. Let's get started. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Trill um, so we can host this Q&A. Like I mentioned before, I am a doula, a certified lactation counselor, and a certified Lamaze uh, educator. I am also a microbiome baby teacher instructor um, as well. So, uh, yeah, Dr. Trill, why don't you introduce yourself? Thank you so much, Angel. First and foremost, it is an honor to get to chat with you. Um, so thank you for having me. And um, so a little bit about myself. Oh, and also thank you so much for the work that you do. That is absolutely incredible and so, so valuable. Um, so myself, I am a molecular biologist by trade. I have a PhD in cellular molecular biology and a background in um, protein research specifically. And uh, I have two little girls who had severe reactions to proteins transferred from my mouth to my boob. Um, so both journeys looked very different. Um, with my oldest, she had severe bloody stool, diarrhea, eczema. Um, it was a really rough journey with her um, and really didn't have, like, support and love that I needed through that. Um, I ended up going on a really strict elimination diet for an entire year with her. And, unfortunately, at the end of that, um, it was, while successful for her, I had a lot of mental and physical health issues because of going on such a strict elimination diet for such a long time, which we don't recommend doing today. Um, and then the second time around when my second daughter was born and she started presenting with symptoms, this time my second daughter had more upper GI responses. So her responses were more so vomiting, reflux, also some rash and some lower GI issues. And so when she started presenting with issues, I was like, okay, there's got to be like research and resources and all this help for me because there's no way I'm going to be able to survive this the second time around without like some help and science. And um, instead, what I found was lots and lots of fellow families and very little resources. And the research that I found didn't support a lot of the information I had been told by different providers or um, groups. And so I really started Free to Feed only a few weeks postpartum with my second daughter as trying to become the thing that I really needed um, in the moment. And in all of the irony in the whole wide world, at the same time, I was working for a dairy processing facility. So, uh, yeah, we can all laugh at, like, how absolutely ridiculous that is. Um, literally making millions of pounds of the food that I could not consume while breastfeeding baby two because cow's milk protein is a very common trigger for food allergies, so I'd already cut it. Um, so I'm running the lab for this dairy processing facility, and I'm teaching lab techs how to use this simple little test to detect other allergens in cow's milk. And I was like, this test is really easy to use, and it would be absolutely incredible if I could test my breast milk and just know what's in it at any time. Like, that would completely change the game for me. 
Um, and so I ran into a closet and I squirted some breast milk on the thing as one does and it did not work. And so then the questions became like, okay, well, like, why do we do this for cows and we're not doing this for women? And two, why doesn't this thing work? And uh, over the last four years, I've been focusing all of my research efforts on exactly understanding our transferability from our mouth to our breast and the reactions that can be caused in our infants from food reactivity early in life. Um, and that's with grant funding and investor funding research. Um, and the answers that we found to those two questions was, one, um, probably because men don't lactate is why this doesn't exist yet. Um, and we do this for cows, if we can be honest. And two, the reason why uh, that test that I squirted my own milk on didn't work is because no one had thought to that point to figure out exactly what these allergies look like when they get to the breast. So um, that test was for the protein in, in its entirety, but we're not shooting peanuts out of our nipples. Thank goodness, right? But we're shooting little small portions of what's left over of the peanuts, and we can dive into, like, more nuance and specifics and get nerdy there, but... What I spent the last four years doing is finding out exactly what does the peanut look like when it gets to your boob so we can detect it. And we've made the first, uh, first and foremost, we found all of that information. So we did the research to figure out what do these proteins look like um, when they get to the breast, how long are they there, all of that fun stuff. And then next, we've created a mechanism to test it. So just like um, many of you may be familiar with, like, COVID tests at home now, um, maybe a little too familiar very similar to that, um, a simple little lateral flow test device that gives you answers for what's in your boobs. So hoping to help empower parents and empower them to continue breastfeeding and not have to go on big, blind elimination diets. That's awesome. Thank you for your work. Um, this is groundbreaking research. Um, like you said, no one is really doing this kind of stuff. So that is amazing. And um like I said, my son had allergies, and I, you know, I breastfed all of five of my kids. I have five kids, and um, my first two didn't have allergies, but my third son, he presented with some crazy symptoms. Uh, so he, it started off, honestly, just cradle cap. That got insanely <laughs> worse. Um, he was scratching his head, then he got eczema, his skin looked horrible and I for the longest time didn't know that it was my breast milk or that it was even allergies so um we just took him to a dermatologist we put all the ointments <laughs> and you know like trying to cope with you know those outside symptoms and poor little guy like it it was <laughs> the breast milk or whatever I was eating um and to later find out actually that uh, I would give him a formula occasionally, and he would break out from the formula. And we're like, what? Who? You can be allergic to formula? Wait, how How does that happen? And then later on, when he got into solids, he I was feeding him some eggs, and he broke out in a rash uh, from the eggs. So we took him to an allergist <laughs> and come to find out. He had he did not have an allergy to milk actually he had an allergy to eggs um, so that was so new for me as a mom as a breastfeeding mom and luckily I was lucky to have an allergist that 
did kind of know a little bit about breastfeeding and allergies, and she was able to help me continue that breastfeeding journey. So that kind of brings me to my first question is, what kind of allergies did your kids have? Yeah, that's a great question. And first, like, huge kudos to you for breastfeeding through all of that and being on that crazy journey. It's not uncommon for us to find that, um, like, officially find the triggers when we get to solids and we give it to baby and we're like, oh, holy moly, got it. Okay, it heard. Um, and, and it's unfortunate, right, because if we had more support and um, love and empathy with those early symptoms um, instead of kind of, like, quite frankly, being ignored, then it's something that we can find sooner. Um, so I'm sorry that you went through that, and I'm glad to hear that you have some answers now. Um, and egg is super, super common, actually, for um, especially with littles who are having eczema responses. So um, I feel you in my soul, and our oldest had um, that, like, awful, awful skin issues, and they're itchy, and it's just so painful. So my heart and soul goes out to you. Um, so... You had a question, and I totally just derailed myself because I was just enthralled with your story. So remind me again what your your question was. Yeah, so what kind of allergies did your kids have? Yes, thank you, thank you. Okay, so interestingly, with my oldest, I have no idea. So um, because I didn't have any support through her journey, I just went on this crazy elimination diet. I never brought anything back because I was too scared, and I didn't even know if that was going to be an option. And I was also told this falsehood, this misinformation around um, transferability of a food. And so I was told in the hospital when I was like, I really want to keep breastfeeding. Is there any way that I can make hypoallergenic breast milk if you can make hypoallergenic formula? And they were like, yeah, sure. But anytime that you eat a food, it's going to be in your breast milk for at least two weeks. So you need to go on this formula. You need to start your elimination diet and you need to pump like a mad woman. And once you've gotten through your clearing of two weeks, then you can get back to breastfeeding. So I did that. I pumped like a mad woman. I prayed like crazy that my little would come back to the breast after two full weeks on a hypoallergenic formula. And we did, thankfully. But because of that misinformation, and if somebody's listening and they just happen to like step away for the rest of this conversation, it does not stay in your breast milk for weeks on end. It clears very quickly, just like other molecules in our body. So I'll put a pin in that, but I was told that information, and so I was too scared, quite frankly, like, oh, well, if I start trialing foods, if I try to eat some cheese, it's going to be in my boob for weeks on end, and I'm going to poison, which is also what I was told at the hospital, poison my baby for weeks on end, and so I was just too scared to trial anything. We waited until she was around one. We brought foods back for her directly instead of through me um, so it would be more straightforward and I wouldn't have to worry about having that in my milk for too long after a reaction um, and by the time we got all of the things that I had cut back into her diet which takes a long time when that list is like long um, she had outgrown all of the reactivity so uh, she didn't react to anything that we brought back um, and it's still a mystery today. Um, <clears throat> yay for being able to get everything back at that point and not have reactivity, but also would have been nice to have some answers um, and obviously not to have been on that strict elimination diet for such a long, long time. With my youngest, she had um, a few different triggers. Her main trigger was an FPIES trigger to oats. And so FPIES is um, a response for many littles that causes excessive vomiting. So an acute FPIES is excessive vomiting. A chronic is usually the lower GI issues. 
And so our biggest one was oats. That one was hard to find, quite frankly. Um, we had multiple reactions to oats at different times. And then she had a handful of lower GI issues, dairy, soy, um, and wheat being like kind of the main ones. Um, and we just kind of worked through elimination, reintroduction faster, and then figured out like exactly what it was that was causing, causing her biggest issues. She's since outgrown. Um, her triggers as well. And now um, she eats oatmeal with her daddy every morning and it gives me heart palpitations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, growing allergies, that's going to be something that we may discuss a little bit further. But yeah, the I thought maybe like my son would have these allergies forever. And I am happy to say that he no longer has an egg allergy. Unfortunately, he actually hates eggs. So. <laughs> well, at least if he accidentally has one, exactly. it's yeah, going to be so, okay. Yeah, so if he accidentally has one, and of course, he can do like anything cooked with it and all that good stuff. So, um, and something else you had mentioned was, you know, the things that you were told in the hospital. So, you know, during your journey with, you know, breastfeeding and allergies, what kind of providers did you find helpful or did you find any providers helpful? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and unfortunately, um, I, I didn't find um, providers that were helpful for my particular journey. I work with lots and lots of families today and Sometimes we're able to find providers who are empathetic and helpful. Um, unfortunately, though, for my own journeys uh, with my oldest, I um, ran into and tried to work with many providers, and none of them were supportive of my breastfeeding. Um, none of them were supportive of anything other than the known hypoallergenic formula. And on one side, I totally get it, right? It's so easy to switch to easy to switch to a hypoallergenic formula because the can tells you what's in it, right? It's got a nice little list on the back of the can. We know what's in it. If we have an issue to it, we can try a different one. Whereas the providers don't know what's in the magical mystery that is your breast, right? We don't have an ingredient deck for the boob yet. And so um, with my oldest, I saw lots of specialists because we were in the thick of, like, why is she bleeding profusely? I was largely being ignored. Um, so my main provider just said, like, yeah, babies cry. And then, yeah, babies bleed sometimes and was really dismissed. And it wasn't until then we got admitted to the hospital. Eventually, when a um, GI, I think, just took pity on the shell of a human that I was at that point because she had. At that point, June, my oldest um, only had, like, blood that was coming out of the back end. Like, all that came out of her little body was blood. And she was so covered in eczema that was weeping at that point and infected. Um, and we had mittens on her. And I remember getting, like, shamed by other people about, like, well, if you keep mittens on her, she's not going to be developmentally, you know, up with the rest of her peers. And I'm like, okay, well, she will scratch herself until she has scars for the rest of her life, so you can go kick rocks, um, and I'm going to keep putting mittens on my little human who is miserable, um, and she's perfectly fine um, today. Developmentally, she's brilliant, um, and so then when I did get admitted to the hospital after that GI visit, um, the a medical provider literally walked in on me breastfeeding because she was hungry and I was like, okay, well, we're in our own, we're in a room and I'm going to whip out a boob and feed my baby. And a medical provider walked in and said, and gasped and said, oh my God, I can't believe you would poison your baby like that. 
and I just I was like dumbfounded. Um, wow. And we immediately went into a 24-hour starvation diet where we weren't allowed to feed her anything for 24 hours. And when you're the food, that's hard, right? That's really, really hard when you're the food. Um, so I'm pumping in the stairwell of the hospital because they didn't have a place for me, um, crying, just a hot mess. And fast forward to my second daughter's journey. At that point, um, because of my background, at that point, like I was, I graduated with my PhD and all of that. At that point, when I went to my medical provider, she was very honest and upfront that like it wasn't something she understood or knew anything about. So she just kind of like took my lead. Um, and that was then eventually got to the point of like, Hey, I started a whole, whole ass company around this. Um, and so we would still like, we just recently moved. So we're going to have new, new doctor soon, but for like three years, she would just keep up to date on like, what's free to feed doing and be like, yeah, let me know when the test strips are available so I can help my family. So what a crazy like journey that it's been as it relates to like where we're actually getting assistance and when we're not. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I totally relate to your story. And, um, yeah, the especially the eczema, the weeping sores, having to put mitts on your baby because they're, like, scratching their head so bad. And then even just, you know, people looking at your baby like, what is wrong with your child? <laughs> and just, like, are you, like, what are you doing wrong kind of thing? And, you know, it's even hard um, just, you know, already to get a lot of good support with breastfeeding in general. Like, it's very difficult. So to add something on top of, like, something like an allergy, then it's like, what do you do now? What do you do? And who do do I look for for support? So, wow, definitely relate to that experience as well. So, um, you know, let's get into a little bit more about, you know, the elimination diet. So, what did the elimination diet look like? And, you know, how did you go grocery shopping? <laughs> With lots of tears, lots of tears. Um, so uh, elimination diets can take several different forms. Um, so the, the general idea behind an elimination diet is removing a food because if we remove it from our mouth, we'll remove it from our breasts and then hopefully remove it the reactions that we're seeing for our infant. The difficult part is that we need to remove the right things at the same time to get to a happy, healthy baby. And that is super confusing when it's not you and your body, right? We always, we can tell how we feel. It's a lot harder when it's through a whole nother human and it's through your body. So two bodies, two different things happening at the same time. And navigating that is freaking hard. So if you're in the middle of this journey and you're stressed and you're like, this is so hard, it would be weird if you didn't feel that way. I would be more worried about you at that point if you're like, oh, this is fabulous and super easy. Like, do you need a hug? So um, the the main strategies on the elimination diets, one, um, the first strategy that many will take is one at a time, right, where we say, okay, what's the likely things that are causing an issue? Or, hey, I'm using a food log. For example, we launched our free-to-feed app on the app stores, which allows parents to, like, track their intake and baby symptoms. So maybe the parents are tracking, and they're like, oh, it looks like every time I eat cheesy pasta, I see blood in stool, or there's reflux, or this rash pops up. And so you can start to correlate and say, okay, I'm pretty sure that we have a cow's milk protein issue. Or we say, yeah, the most common issue, 90% of children who have reactivity as infants react to cow's milk protein. Um, and about half of them will be reactive to something in addition to that. So you can have more than one trigger. So if you're um, 
starting this journey, many times we'll do like one at a time. Another strategy is to do several all together. Oftentimes we will do that if um, baby is has really severe reactivity or if the family's already done a few elimination diets and they're struggling, we might go to like a top four elimination or a top 12 elimination. And so we have like one at a time, we have a group at a time, and then the most um, the least likely thing for me to recommend, but we do use it if we absolutely have to, is a total elimination diet, which is known as a TED in this community, where um, the parent may go down to only a handful of foods. So instead of like, this is the list of foods we are are not eating, these are the list of foods we are eating. And it, so it'll be like five to seven foods. And for example, to kind of like help ourselves wrap our brains around this, an example of this would be, all right, I'm literally living off of Turkey, quinoa, butternut squash, um, pears, and extra virgin olive oil. And that is it. Every day, all day for all three meals and my snacks. And you can imagine how freaking awful that is. And it's not sustainable and it's not good for our bodies. And so um, oftentimes then if we meet families who are already there, we work on how do we get the diet expanded really quickly. But those are the three like main strategies. We're going one at a time, we're doing a group, or we're all the way down to a TED. And with all of these strategies, the main thing to know is that it's so valuable for you to reintroduce foods once you get to baseline. So once you get to a happy, healthy baby, you have to do a reintroduction strategy so you can figure out if it wasn't just a one at a time, I removed one thing and it was all over, right? For you, if you were like, yeah, I removed eggs and like, boom, all better. You can feel pretty confident that like eggs was your problem unless you massively impacted another food group by removing eggs. Like, oh yeah, I removed eggs and turns out like I really quit eating wheat on accident too. So you have to think through that. Um, but unless you only removed one thing and saw massive improvement, if you removed one, more than one, it's so important for you to work with somebody on how do I bring these foods back so you can figure out exactly what your baby's trigger is so you're not eliminating things long-term for funsies because it's not funsies. Right, right. And I can imagine just, and, you know, with everything having so many different allergens in it, like soy, we have wheat, we have, milk and you know eggs so yeah that i can imagine you know it can be difficult like grocery shopping and again we're coming back to the right support and the right information to make sure that we do that um, and do it well and then being able to come back to a point where we're able to you know get back to healthy eating for our bodies as well so awesome um so my next question uh, it's going to be, can you really be allergic to breast milk? That's a great question. Um, so it is incredibly rare for children to be allergic to breast milk. It's not typically a thing. And so almost all families, if they have reactivity issues through breast milk, it is from a food that we are consuming. And I think it's really important here to mention that, like, there are very, very rare cases where the child may be born with the inability to break anything down. And by anything, I mean also breast milk. So then, yes, we can be reactive to breast milk technically because we are reactive to everything. And that happens when the baby is born without the correct enzymes, and that is a big issue for the child is usually caught immediately after they're born because they fail to thrive. They really have a ton of issues in the hospital. They're not released until they figure out exactly what this issue is and then often get put on a very specific like feeding program. Um, and like I said, very, very rare. And it's essentially the pancreas or the small intestines not creating the right enzymes that they need to have. 
So almost all littles who have reactivity, like what we've been mentioning, these symptoms we've been mentioning, um, have what's called non-IgE-mediated allergies. And the good news is that these are almost always outgrown. Hallelujah. And the bad news is that they can't be tested for except for through trial and error, which is so incredibly hard on us. Obviously, that's really, really difficult. However, <clears throat> it is something that's in our diet and not something that's just in our our breast period, right? Um, and it's really hard when we see um, reviews, for example, in the scientific literature that talk about, well, you don't transfer enough to elicit a response in your baby. That is not true. And um, so in these reviews where they're looking at the different data and talking about the data, they're specifically looking at research that looks for the whole protein. And as I alluded to earlier when I was like, we don't shoot peanuts out of our nipples, we're not shooting the whole protein out of our nipples, right? So when they say we don't transfer enough cow's milk protein to elicit a response in a baby, the answer to that is you're right. We don't transfer the whole portion of cow's milk proteins through our breast. It would be really weird if we did. So you're correct in that. But we are transferring small portions of the proteins, and that is enough to elicit a response. And the actual concentration of what we transfer from our mouth to our diet or to our breast um, is about 500 parts per million of these fragmented proteins. And the threshold for the FDA of what elicits a response is five parts per million. So the answer to are we transferring enough that can elicit a response through our breast is absolutely 100 times as much as what can elicit a response in the general public. And um, the reason I believe that this kind of fallacy is shared, that, like, your baby's allergic to your breast milk or you don't transfer enough of this protein to elicit a response in your baby that you're seeing is the idea behind something being wrong with you and something being wrong with your breast milk and that there isn't an option to adjust your diet. There isn't an option to continue breastfeeding. Your baby's allergic to your breast milk. Your baby has colic, reflux, rash, bloody stool, diarrhea, all of these problems because of you and your breast milk instead of um, something that's easily changed with dietary adjustments. Because that increases the probability that you're going to switch to a formula, quite frankly. Um, and nothing against formula, but 100% against this idea that we're going to shame and misinformation families into switching to formula by saying, that, by gaslighting. By gaslighting and saying, it's not possible that, like, when you ate cheese, that enough of it got to your boob to cause your baby a problem. Even though you know for a fact that you saw it. I ate the cheese, baby bled out of their butt. I eat the cheese again, baby let out of their butt again. So we're just gaslighting families at this point. Um, and so with all of that being said, um, I really felt doing all of this research that, like, I could do all the clinical trials under the sun. I could stand on top of every mountain and scream at the top of my lungs about, like, this research and this misinformation that's being touted um, and funded by large companies. Um, but instead, what was more valuable to me was, if I just gave the power to parents, if I just give you a test strip that you can detect it in your own milk, we don't have this question anymore. You no more even having this conversation of did I transfer it? Do I transfer enough? No, no more. Here you go. Here's your test. You can just know exactly how much you've transferred at any given time. And you're no longer dependent on um, these misinformation sources and being gaslit. Awesome. And for those of you don't, that don't know, Dr. Trill is doing an amazing job shouting this from the rooftop. Uh, she has 
awesome reels that are very educational on Instagram um, that shares this kind of information. So on the topic of proteins, how long do those proteins actually stay in your breast milk? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the shout out. Um, something I never thought I'd do with my PhD is definitely dancing to booby facts on the internet. So um, I'm glad that it's reaching families though, and I've learned a lot. <laughs> so um, on transferability, what we found is that these little portions of proteins that we're transferring. So it totally makes sense that when you eat a piece of cheese, you're going to break it down significantly before you transfer it to your breast. So you eat a piece of cheese, it's traveling through your gastrointestinal system, and you're breaking it down via your microbiome, your digestive enzymes, and so much more in your system, it's going to travel from your gastrointestinal system into your circulatory system. It absorbs, which makes total sense, right? That's how we absorb all of the nutrients that we're consuming. So it absorbs into your circulatory system, and anything in your circulatory system can end up in your breast because breast milk's made out of blood, and we don't have any filtration device between those two things. So anything in your blood can wind up in your breast. And what we see is that after you consume something, it's going to spike in concentration in your breast a few hours after ingestion and steadily plummet from there, usually gone within 24 hours, often even sooner, often within an eight-hour window if we're regularly removing breast milk. So we give 24 hours for an extra buffer in case you're not feeding regularly or you um, have a different metabolism, you're an outlier in some way. So typically we give 24 hours for breast milk to clear of a protein that you're consuming. And then from there, a lot of the misinformation I think that comes out of this is, and confusion is that then we have baby's body, right? So we just talked about your body when you're lactating, but then baby's body has a reaction. So if we have an acute reaction, which is the fast responses, that'll either happen immediately or a few hours after ingestion. Or if it's the back end of baby, chronic reactions like, bloody stool or even eczema, the sweet spot for that is usually six to eight hours after ingestion. But if baby is not stooling very frequently, it can take up to 48 hours. So that's where we get a good almost three days from your consumption before you see that blood and stool if we're only getting the goods every other day, for example. And then we give a couple of days for impact usually when we're doing an elimination diet. So it should not take weeks and weeks on end for you to see impact if you've eliminated something. By the end of a five-day window from elimination, if you've effectively removed that thing that you've tried to remove from your diet, um, you should see some kind of improvement by day five. If you don't, it definitely shouldn't, like, get worse on day five or any of that craziness about, like, it's going to get worse before it gets better in, like, weeks, weeks. What you should see is a steady improvement day over day from there. We may not have a brand new baby, but we should see improvement. And then from there, we have time for healing, which is another part that people can get confused about transferability versus healing time, right? It's not that because your baby has less and less blood every day over the course of two weeks that you are transferring and you have that in your boob for two weeks, it's that baby has to heal, right? We literally, it's a wound in the gastrointestinal system. And even though you're not continuing to cut and create that wound, now it's got to close. And it doesn't have a Band-Aid on it, unfortunately, and it's being rubbed against by stool all day long. Um, so now these are wounds that have to close in the system. Awesome. Great. That was super, super informative. And, wow, healing your, your gut, that's something that, you know, we don't really talk about, and I didn't even, you know, kind of think about it until you said it, but yes, we have to heal your, you know, your GI tract to make sure that, you know, um, we see all the improvement that we can, and, you know, baby gets 100% better, so that's awesome. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. 
Um, so uh, what are some common foods that affect babies um, with allergies? Yeah, so the first most important thing to mention is that any food can elicit a response in any human. So we basically go on probability as far as like what foods are most likely to elicit a response in people. Um, so in the general public, we usually think of like top allergens. And so for the U.S., we have a top eight, soon to be a top nine of like this list of foods. And the FDA put together this list of foods based on the general public and what will cause life-threatening reactions. So like what we think of as a stereotypical allergy. I have a stereotypical IgE allergy to shellfish. If I accidentally consume, I have to give myself an EpiPen, jab myself in the leg, go to the hospital. It's a fun time. Now, that being said, it's super important then for food manufacturers and the general public to be aware of those allergens because you could drop dead on the street, right? So it's very important for them to be like, hey, there's a peanut in this candy bar. Um, but that's not the case for most littles, right? For most Infants that are having reactivity, they have these non-IgE-mediated allergies, which are um, not this anaphylactic shock-style reaction. It also means that the foods aren't always the same, that are more likely to elicit that type of response. So the foods that are the, the same as, like, our top allergens list, and they're most common for infants, um, the top shelf most common thing that infants will react to is cosmoprotein, um, and then from there, soy, um, specifically because Soy and cow's milk proteins structurally are very similar. So a lot of times, if they look like this, if they both look like this, the immune system's not able, especially in those early years, to tell the difference between the two. <clears throat> and so dairy, then soy, wheat and egg tie for third. And then from there, um, we kind of get into the, the gray zone that's really interesting with infants in that it's more likely for an infant to be reactive to things like corn, rice, um, legumes, and um, beef and chicken than it is for them to be reactive to things like fish and shellfish. Now, can they be reactive to fish and shellfish? Absolutely. It's just more likely for them to be have issues with beef and chicken. Um, so those and then the other ones that are typically on the list for infants are still peanuts and tree nuts as well. So that, that group that I just mentioned makes up the top 12 infant food allergies. Um, and that's from published research as well as our own research of looking at like, what are the actual maternal reported food allergies? Because if you go and you look at, you know, the, um, research from immunology groups, they're only reporting on what can be tested and confirmed. But if we can't test an infant who's younger than six months old for an IgE allergy, and we can't test any infants for non-IgE allergies, that means that their numbers are going to be like only 3% of babies are reactive to peanuts. So it's not that big of a deal. When in actuality, when you go ask parents, um, the maternal reporting of food allergies through the breast is 25% today. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, we see that a, a lot of times where uh, you know, the moms do notice these things. Um, and then, you know, you could be like me and not know what's going on with your baby. <laughs> it could be even higher than that. So, wow, that's awesome. Awesome to know. Um, so what are some things that moms can be looking for when it comes to possible allergies? Uh, what are some symptoms that they can look for in baby? Yeah, great question. So I, when I'm talking about symptoms, I like to work on the outside and then the inside and top to bottom so I don't forget anything because there's a lot. Um, and the most important thing to know before I start rattling off all these issues is that most babies will not tick every box. 
So um, most babies are only going to tick one or two boxes, um, maybe three or four. But in general, they will not have all of these problems. Thank goodness. Um, but the unfortunate part about it is that often that's then used against families to dismiss their problems. What I mean by that is parents will be told like, oh, your baby can't have food allergies. They're on their weight curve. Look at how chunky they are. Babies with food allergies don't gain weight. Yes, they do. Um, or, you know, it can't be a food allergy because they're not bleeding out of their butt. Okay, why is that the barrier to entry here? Um, we would never say to a grown adult, like, sorry, you're not bleeding out of your butt, so we're not worried about you. Or, yeah, you, you know, she cries every day for hours on end and, and is inconsolable. She's just a crybaby. We're going to say that it's colic. You know, we would never do that to another human um, that is able to speak for themselves. So I want to caveat that, that, like, as I'm rattling all these off, most babies will only take a couple of these. <clears throat> so on the outside, what we'll see is um, the cradle cap. The cradle cap that doesn't go away or spreads is um, a big sign. And then any kind of eczema, most frequently with these babies, it'll be in the creases, so in their neck, in, their, um, on, in the creases of their elbow or their knees. Can be other places, too. That's just most common. Cheeks as well. Um, we'll see um, flushing. We can see other rashes. We can see hives. Um, so that's all external. And then on their bum, we can also see um, diaper rash that won't go away. And oftentimes, we call this the allergy ring. So it's a ring right around the anus um, from contact dermatitis of the protein going through their system and then contacting their little bum. Um, so if it's a persistent diaper rash, we cannot get to go away, and it happens every time I eat a certain thing, probably a, a contact dermatitis rash. And then on the inside, top to bottom, we see issues with chronic congestion, and then um, we can see uh, uh, vomiting, reflux, spit up. It has many names, um, but essentially bringing that food back up and giving it back to you. Here you go. You can have that back. Thanks. Um, and then as we go down in the lower GI tract, we'll see constipation, diarrhea, bloody stool, excessively mucusy stool. Not all mucus is bad mucus. Um, and then, and then there are a number of secondary symptoms to these primary problems. So what I mean by that is, for example, if your baby has eczema, they may have sleep disturbances, right? They're itching like crazy and they're mad about it. Um, if your baby has um, excessively mucusy stool, they may also be called colic, meaning that they're they're upset and they're going to tell you about it. Um, or some of the issues that we can see, um, we can see feeding aversions, right? So if they're having the, like, reflux issues especially, it's literally a reaction that's acute, meaning it's happening real time in front of you. So sometimes we'll see babies do the arcing of the back, the twisting off of the boob. No, I don't want that. Get away from me. It is causing me discomfort right now. So we'll see nursing strikes and feeding aversions. And then because baby is either bringing a lot of that meal up and giving it back to you, or having excessive diarrhea where there's malabsorption then, they can fall off their weight curve. So we'll see failure to thrive or struggles in weight gain because they're not effectively absorbing the nutrients because they're either not keeping it in their belly long enough or the cells in their small intestines are so inflamed that they're not doing their job anymore. They're not absorbing those nutrients. So we can have a slew of issues for these littles. Um, and typically it'll look different baby to baby because, of course, why would it be simple? Um, so, for example, like I mentioned with my oldest, you know, we had bloody stool, we had the eczema, the diarrhea, um, and then, you know, inconsolable colic. She was my crier. And then my second, 
Um, we had the reflux. We had a little bit of rash. We had a, some G, lower GI issues, but she was my comforter. I thought my nipples were going to fall off my, my body, but she just nursed all of the stinking time um, because it, she didn't cry, yay, uh, but she just nursed all the time. So I had my crier and my comforter, and um, then I was like, we're we're so done having babies now. I, I won't survive round three, so... Um, those are the main symptoms that we're on the lookout for. There's some nuanced ones that will pop up for different families, like chronic ear infections, things that are related to different parts of the systems and bodies um, that are important to just keep in the back of our minds. Um, the most common little things to keep in the back is um, fever can sometimes occur and chronic ear infections, things like that, HEIs. Yep. Good stuff. Good stuff. So you had mentioned reflux, and so I worked at WIC for about two years um, as a breastfeeding peer counselor, so I worked a lot with dietitians, and one of the most common um, prescriptions and diagnoses for babies that were throwing up was GERD. So what is the relationship with GERD and food allergies? Is it the same? Um you know, does this relate to food allergies? Is it completely different? Yeah, so GERD is really interesting, and I would I would push back that as we get more research on GERD, I feel like we're going to find more and more that it is food allergy related, that a lot of the GERD families are actually, like, true reactivity to a specific food because um, it's outgrown too, right? Um, for these infants, typically it's outgrown. Um, so I believe as we get more research, we'll find more and more that, like, GERD is actually food reactivity issues. Um, and typically we're doing one of two things, right? We're either, like, adjusting formula options so that um, we're now breaking down proteins differently in different prote- in different formulas. So that would still address the food allergy issue and make it go away or make it better. Or we're band-aiding it with a medication, um, which we do with a lot of these symptoms. And same type of situation where we're not getting to the root cause, um, but we're band-aiding it just long enough that they outgrow it. Yeah, for sure. And then that also kind of leads me into a follow-up question about formula. Do you think that there are there is a relationship with formula and allergies or increased risk of allergies later on in life with formula feeding. Yeah, so what's interesting, um, <clears throat> the answer to that is it depends. So uh, we do have research now that's really fascinating that shows that if we gave a cow's milk protein-based formula at the very first couple of days of life to supplement because mom's breast milk isn't in and we can all like have like the world's largest eye roll to that. Um, so when they say like, well, you don't have any milk and you have to supplement with this formula because I don't know, we, the person doing that hasn't learned about colostrum, whatever it is. Um, <clears throat> so they give formula on those first few days and then the parents are like, no, I really want to breastfeed. So they stop giving that formula um, and they just exclusively breastfeed, the research shows that the probability of that child having a cow's milk protein allergy is through the roof, specifically because they were given that more whole version of the protein early, early in life in the first few days and then not given it ever again. So literally showing that, like, if that happens, it's actually more valuable for you to keep giving and supplementing just a little bit of that cow's milk protein long-term because that will reduce the likelihood that they'll start reacting to it. The immune system sees it early on as the whole thing, and then later sees it as a target of, like, you are a bad thing, and I'm going to freak out about you. Right, right. Which you kind of answered my question um, that I was kind of thinking about was, 
Um, a lot of times when moms have food allergies, the quick solution is to stop breastfeeding and to supplement. Is that a good solution um, to that problem? So certainly, based on that research, it's a really bad solution to that problem. Um, but even if we are saying, okay, we're we're not going to have you cut cow's milk protein and then give baby a cow's milk protein formula, which that does happen, and it blows my whole mind. Um, <clears throat> but if we say, like, okay, baby has food allergies, we're going to go to this hypoallergenic formula, right? The elemental formula is broken all the way down to the amino acids. So they should be tolerated by baby. Some still have reactivity to these these uh, formulas. So this mindset of like, you need to go on an elimination diet, supplement with a formula and wait for your breast milk to clear so you can get back to breastfeeding. It does a few things. One, it's total BS because we know that that's not how transferability works. You should continue breastfeeding. Even if you have a slip, all of that fun stuff, you should continue breastfeeding through your reactivity because by the time you realize that you've had a slip, you've already peaked and started to clear. You've already breastfed the most amount that you're going to give your baby after that slip. So keep on checking on and Give yourself all the grace and love that you deserve. Um, and this mindset of, like, when you start or if you have a slip, you have to stop breastfeeding and go to formula is, um, one, it dramatically decreases the likelihood that baby is going to be able to keep breastfeeding, right? We, now we're going to have things like nipple aversion problems. We're going to have nipple confusion issues. Um, we're going to have preference problems. And you are highly likely to lose your supply during that time, too, if you're not super supported through exclusively pumping, right? We can all say, like, those of you who are exclusive pumpers, like, my whole bra off to you because that shit's so much work. Um and so it is highly likely that the breastfeeding journey is going to completely drop off, which, if we can be honest here, like, that's kind of the goal, right? The goal is you can get them on formula, show them that a formula can be successful, and then have them lose their supply, done deal. Right, yes. And I see that time and time and time again um, very often is that we're using formula. Um, breast milk is bad. That's the reason why your baby's acting this way and it'll all get better if you just, you know, switch to this um, formula and then switch again if it's not, that formula's not working. So we do see that quite often. And so actually there's a mom that I had a question for you and she wasn't able to be on this call. Um, but I, I think this is a great question is that she ate a lot of peanuts during her pregnancy and during uh, breastfeeding. And she's wondering if that is what caused her son to have a peanut allergy. That's a good question. So <clears throat> it's a little bit nuanced different, but difference between, like, while we're pregnant versus while we're breastfeeding. So, like, they like, kind of hit on both. So while we're pregnant, what's really fascinating is that your placenta – does a lot of filtration between what you're eating and to what goes to baby um, versus what I was mentioning when we were breastfeeding. There's no filtration device. Whereas while you are um, in utero, while you're, you are still pregnant, that placenta does a whole lot of filtration for you. Now, what's really interesting is that we don't see that um, those particular like protein fragments are transferring through the uter through the placenta to the baby necessarily. Now, that being said, there's more research being done here, so that could be debunked. But up to this point, we haven't seen any. But where we do see it, it interestingly, is in the amniotic fluid and then swallowed by baby. And those are specifically if you are reactive to the food. 
So, for example, if mom was allergic to peanuts, she is going to produce IgE-mediated allergies to peanuts anytime she consumes peanuts. And then those end up in the amniotic fluid, and those get swallowed by baby, which is absolutely fascinating. So um, as I'm working with families who know that they have a history of food allergies especially, or if they've already had one baby and they're stressed about the next baby, been there, um, the number one thing that you can recommend is, like, don't eat foods that elicit you a response, which I know is hard when you're pregnant and you're like, I want to eat plaster. So, like, I get it. Um, but we want to make sure that we're not eating anything while we're pregnant or breastfeeding that causes us reactivity specifically. Um, so <clears throat> that being said, then on the breastfeeding side of things, I want to mention that, like, us transferring these proteins is biologically normal and good. So I know a lot of times we're talking about, like, oh, breast milk is bad because my baby is reacting to whatever I'm eating. It's a good thing for you to transfer, and you're supposed to. You're supposed to transfer the foods that you consume in small portions because it gives your baby early and often introduction of all of these foods that you're eating. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing for them to have this exposure as opposed to a sterile formula that has, you know, corn syrup and a bunch of other fun stuff in it um, and doesn't allow you to early introduce things like peanuts. So it's more likely that this little is reactive to peanuts because of a genetic propensity to have food allergies and not because of anything she ate. So it is 100% not her fault that she ate peanuts in pregnancy, that she lived off of peanut butter while she was breastfeeding. Uh, me too. And um, it's actually probably a good thing that she had those and did that early on. It probably could have even reduced the um, severity of reactions now that her baby is a little bit older and now that they know there's a peanut allergy. So we passed on the propensity for food allergic responses in genetically, unfortunately, which is why we're highly likely to have subsequent babies with the same problem. Um, and even if we don't know that we have food allergy propensities, right, like these are genes that we can pass on to our children without having any knowledge that we have them. Um, you can be like, I eat everything under the sun and my child is reactive to everything. What gifts? And so that's super hard, too. Um, and we're also, that's a, a, an interesting segue to mention that we're also not likely to pass down the same food. So we're likely to pass down the propensity to react to food for our immune system to see a food and be like, you are a bad thing, I'm going to freak out about it. Um, but not so that it's going to be the same food. It can happen, just probability-wise. Um, but that's important to mention, too. And let her know, uh, even though she wasn't able to jump on, if, if, if you listen to this later, you're amazing and you're doing such an incredible job and it is absolutely not your fault that you're in the middle of food reactivity with peanuts. And I'm sorry, that's part of your journey. Thank you for that. And she'll, she'll definitely appreciate it. Um, and I, I love the, the pregnancy question as well. Um, as I mentioned, I am a microbiome baby instructor, so I talk a lot about the microbiome and how, you know, vaginal C-sections, breastfeeding, skin to skin, all of this can impact your baby's immune system, um, which also let's kind of talk about it. Does C-sections cause allergies? And my son, yeah. uh, well, he was a C-section baby, so I, that's a good question. Yeah, that's a fabulous question. Um, both my littles were C-section babies as well. The first one via emergency, the second one planned because I was like, you got to make sure I can't have any more of these crazy little um, humans that are allergic to everything. So <clears throat> um, 
the answer to that is that like we have research showing that there's potential correlation, but we don't have any research yet that shows a specific causation. And the reason is because of all of the like probabilities that go alongside a C-section. So what I mean by that is like, yeah, we do see that if you have had a C-section, you have a certain percentile increase in probability that your baby will have food allergies. So it's basically like then something to do with the C-section is um, increasing the likelihood that we're going to turn on those genes. Does that make sense? And so then the question becomes, what is it? But unfortunately, C-sections have so many other things attached. So the biggest one being microbiome, 110%. The fact that the microbiome is completely different. Um, and then if we're not supporting breastfeeding, the microbiome doesn't get back to, right? So being able to breastfeed allows these C-section babies to catch up, basically, um, in some, in most ways to the microbiome of a baby who is born vaginally. Um, and so if we're not supporting breastfeeding, that falls off, microbiome shifts again. Um, so there's that. But then there's also things like the fact that a lot of C-sections have um, an emergency related to them. So the stress levels are through the roof. So is it, you know, stress that's turning on these genes? Also, C-sections are more likely to be for older parents. So is it, you know, ha- having older um maternal or paternal gametes um, or, you know, gestation that is causing the correlation. And we don't know yet, Um, but we're hoping to get more information. Um, And I know that what's most important as we're talking about, like, that subject and subjects along these lines is that um, I know for me it's hard to look back and be like, man, what could could I have done? What could I have done differently to, to change things? And it's really important to, for these families to give so much grace and love to themselves and understand that, like, you did the best you could with the information you had at the time. Um, and that um, even with the information that we do have, there's more research to be had. And I even work with families that are like, I had a vaginal birth at home with doves singing in the background and, you know, like, and I – ate my placenta raw, right, right, right in the tub. Like, they did all the things and that they, that they thought that they needed to do or they could do, and they still have a baby who has food allergies. So that's important to know, too, that, like, we can do all the things right and the heavens can shine down upon us um, and the angels can sing, and then we still end up not being able to eat cheese. <laughs> so just know that, like, there's only so many things we can control. Yeah, absolutely. We are not simple beings. We're very complicated, and there's so many different factors um, that are involved with food allergies. It's never our fault. We don't do anything. Um, I'm sure you want to eat cheese, so you're not going to turn on that gene to be like, I can't do cheese anymore. Um, so that's so, so, so important, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Um, yes, you know, there are a lot of things that, you know, you learn, you know, you know, about your body and about, you know, different things. And you're like, oh, my gosh, like, maybe if I wouldn't have done this, this wouldn't have happened. But you you did the best you can, again, with the information that you know. And it's also important to, you know, share the information that you know as well so that you, we can spread this and that, you know, your children's children know this information and, you know, they can do preventative measures, okay? So, you know, breastfeeding is a great preventative measure, and it will help you with um, even just, kind of toning down the severity of the allergy. So amazing. Oh, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. So we are kind of getting to our close. So uh, the last thing that I want to um, ask you is, you know, what advice do you give to mothers that are going through this? 
Yeah. Um, so one I'd love to hit on, as you mentioned, you know, like breastfeeding being preventative. Um, that's a big part of like our goal as we move forward is because we know that it's biologically normal and healthy for you to transfer these foods like peanuts, which we mentioned earlier. Um, another part of our mission is to allow for parents to successfully transfer and on purpose give these proteins through your breasts, right, on purpose. Eat peanut butter, know that it transferred, and breastfeed your baby, and you know when your baby was given peanut butter. Uh, so you can early and often introduce on day one through the breast in a natural way. Um, so super, super um, excited that, that you mentioned that too. And as far as, like, my advice to families, the number one thing to know is that wherever you are right now in your journey, you're doing an amazing job, truly. The fact that you're here, the fact that you're listening and learning and striving to do better and be better for your for your family and for your children is absolutely incredible. And I'm so proud of all of the work that you've done for your journey. Awesome. Thank you so much, Charles. So in the comments, and I'll link this and send this, Link out these links out to um, everyone in the email who registered for this event. Um, I have put some of the the resources from Trill. So she's got uh, some consults. She's got information on there. She even I was like stalking her website. She even has like foods that are like you know allergen free. So great, great, great resource. Um, if you want to talk more about some of the the offerings that you have, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so the number one resource that gets utilized by families is our one-on-one personal consults. So our one-on-one consults is literally um, diving into the science, talking about your journey, giving you all of the love and empathy that you deserve to talk through all of this, um, and then help you decide what the best next step is for your journey and then give you all the resources for it. Um, so we offer that. We have a food allergy support package. That's a full year of our crazy faces, you know, holding your hand and walking through the, the hard stuff. Um, and then we have our app. Um, we have um, a cookbook that is all top 12 free and has a slew of different products um, that are free from that you can consume. We really want to make sure that it is um, a full um, support system, right, of all, because this is very nuanced. This is a crazy nuanced situation. So we hit everything from, like, here's resources on mental health. Here's resources on micro, your micronutrients. Here's an app to, to track all this crazy crap um, and everything in between. So, um, and I'm always open to feedback and um, questions and requests, right? So when families are like, I need an app to track this, like, okay, I'm going to take my crazy science brain and go figure out how to make an app. We, so this will be fun. So um, as it comes up in your own journey, if you're like, you know what, this would be so incredibly impactful for me, let me know. And the stuff that we can work on because we want to make sure that this is um, full circle and all of the support that a family needs to get through this. Awesome. I have personally used probably nearly all of your services. Dr. Trill, I can attest that they are wonderful resources. And I always tell everyone they're 100% money, totally well spent, just to have peace of mind and reassurance and the knowledge, because knowledge is power. And I feel like when you're dealing with a lot of healthcare professionals that don't know a lot about allergens, you can feel very gaslighted and blindsided a bit. So it's nice to have someone that knows what they're talking about and have it all like densely compact and easy to access. So thank you. And, and yeah, I do. Anyone watching this that's on the fence, I highly recommend. <laughs> I recommend jumping on the resources that you offer at Free to Feed. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. 
That's awesome. Great. And then the last thing I wanted to mention for you as well is that there were, are some uh, professionals, first professionals in this field. Um, you mm-hmm. offer a master class, which is awesome because we need this information out there. We need our providers to know. Um, we need people to understand what to look for and the symptoms that their patients or clients might be uh, experiencing so that we can widen this range of support and understanding of these problems. So thank you for creating that class. Um, and then I also have my microbiome baby classes where we really talk about, you know, birth, uh, breastfeeding and skin to skin and how that really does impact your baby's immune system and the long-term effects. And also, you know, you know, what you can do in case you do have a C-section, what are some things that are preventative measures that you can do uh, to, you know, help the baby's immune system and to prevent out things like allergies and, and so forth. So it's been so amazing to have you on here. I just love listening to you. you I love your brain. <laughs> Um, and your passion for this. So thank you so much, Trill, for, uh, you know, joining us on this crazy ride. Yes. Thank you so much, Angel, for having me. Thank you to all of your listeners and um, super excited. And if anybody has questions after this, um, I run all of our social media accounts. Uh, so send me prayers and send me messages. Um, if you have any questions at all, I answer all my DMs. So I'm here to support and help you in your journey. Yeah, you mind uh, just telling us what your Instagram names are and Facebook stuff? Yep. So on Instagram, I'm fee or no, I'm free dot two dot feed. Um, so free to feed with periods in between the words, and then on all the other platforms, we're be free to feed. So on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, all those fun things, it's um, be free to feed. Um, so like I said, happy to help anywhere, um, and always here to support and send love. Great. Awesome. And again, my services are Fruit of the Room Perinatal Services. I do a lot of education as well with childbirth, pregnancy, and postpartum and breastfeeding. Um, and you guys can find me on Instagram at Fruit of the Womb. There's only one B. <laughs> Fruit of the Womb Birth uh, on Instagram. It's really my primary hangout spot. So thank you again for joining us. And uh, I hope to, you know, see you on Instagram doing your amazing reels again. <laughs> Yes. Thanks, Angel. Talk soon. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode. But remember, our journey together is far from its conclusion. Ensure you tap that notification bell to stay in the loop about upcoming episodes. Don't forget the valuable resources waiting for you in the podcast description. Also, do you love this podcast? Show your love by leaving a stellar five-star review, spreading the word across your social circles, or even becoming a listener supporter contributing financially to sustain this podcast's existence. If a specific topic tickles your fancy or you aspire to be a guest on our show, don't hesitate to submit your ideas via the link in the podcast description. And to all you incredible women who are expecting or planning to conceive, I'm well aware that fears around childbirth can be overwhelming. From concerns about hospital procedures to coping mechanisms during labor, I've got your back. 
What's even better is that you can now access your free guide on mastering five techniques to conquer the fear of birth. As a bonus, discover a collection of mindfulness tools curated to quell anxiety and fear during pregnancy and childbirth. The guide's link awaits you in the podcast description. Live long, loud, and in prosperity, dear members of the Rebel Birth crew. Until we cross paths again, thrive unapologetically.